All right, so our, our reading today is from 1 Samuel chapter 1, verses 4 through 20. It can be found on page 279 of the Bibles next to your seats, and it will also be on the screen. This is God's word. When the day came for Elkanah to sacrifice, he would give portions of the meat to his wife, Panina, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion, because he loved her, and the Lord had closed her womb. Because the Lord had closed Hannah's womb, her rival kept provoking her in order to irritate her. This went on year after year. Whenever Hannah went up to the house of the Lord, her rival provoked her till she wept and would not eat. Her husband Elkanah would say to her, Hannah, why are you weeping? Why don't you eat? Why are you downhearted? Don't I mean more to you than ten sons? Once, when they had finished eating and drinking in Shiloh, Hannah stood up. Now Eli the priest was sitting on his chair by the doorpost of the Lord's house. In her deep anguish, Hannah prayed to the Lord, weeping bitterly. And she made a vow, saying, Lord Almighty, if you will only look on your servant's misery and remember me and not forget your servant, but give her a son, then I will give him to the Lord for all the days of his life. And no razor will ever be used on his head. As she kept on praying to the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was praying in her heart, and her lips were moving, but her voice was not heard. Eli thought, Eli thought she was drunk and said to her, How long are you going to stay drunk? Put away your wine. Not so, my Lord, Hannah replied. I am a woman who is deeply troubled. I have not been drinking wine or beer. I was pouring out my soul to the Lord. Do not take your servant for a wicked woman. I have been praying here out of my great anguish and grief. Eli answered, Go in peace, and may the God of Israel grant you what you have asked of him. She said, May your servant find favor in your eyes. Then she went her way and ate something, and her face was no longer downcast. Early the next morning they arose and worshipped before the Lord and then went back to their home at Ramah. Elkanah made love to his wife, Hannah, and the Lord remembered her. So in the course of time, Hannah became pregnant and gave birth to a son. She named him Samuel, saying, because I asked the Lord for him. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. God, we know that everyone here is coming from a, a different week that they've had. Um, we have some things in common. We've all been trapped in this smoke. But uh, some of us may be coming out of a, a great week or a terrible week. Uh, some of us may be excited for the upcoming holiday, and some of us may be dreading it. But we ask that you would be with each and every one of us and speak to us through your word. You would give voice uh, to your will among us, and that we might hear that 
and be able to, uh, to absorb what you have for us, your great love. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I came across an article this week about apps uh, designed for women to track their menstrual cycle. Uh, highlighting just how keenly unaware I can be of the experiences of women, it had never really occurred to me that there would be a need for an app to track a menstrual cycle. And the interesting thing in this article is a lot of men never had this occur to them, including men who design apps. Uh, including the men who design apps to track human health. Uh, for example, when Apple launched their Apple Health Kit in 2014, an Apple software executive interviewed said, with Apple Health, you can monitor all of their metrics that you're most interested in. And it was really comprehensive. You could even track your sodium intake for the week. But it didn't include a feature for tracking your period. Uh, in fact, it took almost a year for that feature to be added after public outcry from the very start. Uh, the team was primarily made up of men, and it just hadn't occurred to them. Uh, you know, it's not like it's a routine human health thing that half the human population have been tracking for millennia. Uh, Apple Health Kit does now include this tracker, and there are a couple other major apps out there that focus on the menstrual cycle. Uh, but even these tend to be developed by male software designers and funded by teams of male venture capitalists and are criticized as still missing the boat in several ways. Uh, maybe the biggest failure in the design of, are the assumptions these apps make about why women want to track their menstrual cycle. One scholar, a woman, wrote about the most popular app uh, called Glow with 15 million users. The first onboarding screen asks users to choose their journey and provides three choices, avoiding pregnancy, trying to conceive, and fertility treatments. Five seconds in, I'm already trying to ignore the app's assumptions that pregnancy is why I want to track my period." End quote. This tendency to reduce a woman's interest to pregnancy is, of course, not new. In fact, it was right there in the center of today's scripture reading. As we just heard, Hannah was a woman married to a man named Elkanah. She was not the woman married to Elkanah, but one of two women married to Elkanah. Hannah was his first wife. But after years of infertility, he married another woman by the name of Pinina, in the hopes that she would bear him children. And she did. Uh, this was not as unusual at the time as it sounds to us. It was largely accepted in that time and culture that a man could and should marry a second wife if his first wife failed to produce an heir. Uh, it was assumed that infertility was caused solely by the woman's body. Um, and as Mark kind of addressed last week, talking about Ruth and Naomi, uh, people in this context didn't just want to have babies for their cute chubby cheeks, although I'm sure that played into it, uh, but also for economic reasons. In an agricultural society, children were assets. Future laborers who could help you work your land in your old age, children were your retirement fund. They could work and support you when you could no longer work and support yourself. And so, with economic pressures and social approval, Elkanah married Pinina to bear him children, but tried to reassure Hannah that she was his favorite, the wife he actually loved. Believe it or not, this did not make for a happy home. Uh, 
Pinena, recognizing that she was the runner-up, the unloved wife, the, the baby oven, um, expressed her pain in being cruel to Hannah. She mocked her for her infertility. Hannah, whose husband claimed to love her, married another woman to make him babies and expected Hannah to be happy about it. Hannah responded by weeping. When she wept, Elkanah would comfort her in the best way and say, Hannah, why are you weeping? Why don't you eat? Why are you downhearted? Don't I mean more to you than ten sons? He did not see, perhaps he could not see, that he was the one responsible for her suffering and her sadness. He never thought to flip his question around. He never imagined her asking him, aren't I worth more to you than ten sons? She had his answer already. A constant reminder in Pinina, the second woman he married in pursuit of an heir. She knew that their culture supported him in his decision and that her grief was her grief alone. But Elkanah kept asking her questions. Why are you weeping? Why won't you eat? Without any real interest in listening to the answer. These were questions meant to silence her. And so, knowing that her grief was hers alone, Hannah went to the tabernacle to weep and pray before the Lord. She prayed silently in her anguish, her mouth moving noiselessly. And Eli, the high priest, observed her mouth and assumed that she was drunk. He accused her of coming to the tabernacle drunk, telling her to put away her wine. This is an odd assumption to make, uh, to see someone in the tabernacle, overcome with emotion, silently mouthing words, and to assume this woman is drunk, rather than this woman is praying. The tabernacle was not exactly a bar. But there's more to Eli's story that can shed some light on this assumption. Today's text comes from the first chapter of 1 Samuel, but Eli's and Hannah's stories continue for a few more chapters. In those, we learn that Eli, the high priest, an older man, had two adult sons, Hophni and Phinehas. Hophni and Phinehas were also priests. And they were priests who abused the powers and privileges that came with being priests. Their two worst abuses are specifically mentioned in the text. First, when people came to the tabernacle to worship and to offer their sacrifice before God, they would actually come and physically intimidate the worshipers, uh, threaten violence if they didn't give them the choicest cut of meat from the animal they brought to sacrifice. Uh, second, and especially relevant to our reading today, Hophni and Phinehas were sexual predators. They took advantage of the women who served at the tabernacle. Eli knew that his sons were doing these things. And he chided them for it, but that was the extent of his response. He was not only their father, but a high priest. He was in two positions to actually do something about their abuse of power. But he shirked his responsibility. He did nothing more than scold them and worry that they might suffer punishment from God. I guess that's not exactly right. That's not all he did. We know from our passage today that he tried to stop his sons from abusing their power by policing the women who visited the tabernacle. It seems that when he noticed Hannah overcome with emotion, he saw her as a drunk woman who would be easy prey for his predatory sons. We can imagine this was a mixture of concern for Hannah's safety, as well as a concern that she posed a threat, a temptation to which his sons would succumb. Unwilling to do what needed to be done to stop his adult sons from hurting women who came to the tabernacle to worship, Eli put the responsibility on women to keep his sons from assaulting them. 
Unfortunately, this sort of behavior is not a relic of the past. Uh, in the past year, we've had Me Too, and then a couple months after that started, we had Church Too. Um, and it's become abundantly apparent, although arguably it's abundantly apparent to about half the people already, that these problems persist in the world today. Uh, we've seen case after case of men abusing their power to take advantage of women through assault and harassment. Uh, in many cases, we have seen that women who tried to report their abusers or to seek help were disbelieved or had their concerns minimized and dismissed. And we've seen that there's still many people who hear reports of sexual harassment and assault and blame the victims. What was she wearing? Why was she alone with him? Was she drunk? Why didn't she say something at the time? Doesn't it seem like she said something at the time just to get attention? If we pay attention not only to the stories of Me Too, but to the stories of Church Too, we cannot avoid the terrible truth that in many cases, there are still religious leaders who behave like Eli or like Hophni and Phinehas. There are stories of teenage girls being blamed for their youth pastors taking advantage of them, forced to apologize to their abusers for tempting them. There are stories of victims told by church leadership to keep quiet because their stories would hurt the image of the church and therefore hurt the image of Jesus. And there's so many stories of victims, girls and boys, disbelieved because the person who hurt them is so well-respected and has such a polished public image. And all this comes not from God, but from cultures that see men and boys as more important and more competent than women and girls. Uh, for the past two weeks, we've heard Mark preach about the ways in which those with power abuse and mistreat the people without power, and the way that God opposes and rejects and breaks down these systems and patterns of abuse. And one of the most common patterns of abuse of power throughout history is men abusing their power over women. Uh, this shows up in some ways that are obviously terrible, but it also shows up in subtler ways that claim to be concerned with protecting women. Uh, I'm going to ask for a slide to be put up on the screen right now that shows one example of this. Here we go. Um, hopefully a lot of you have never seen this. Um, there's a good chance that some of you have. And if you haven't seen it before, you've probably encountered this uh, general idea. Uh, the image originated with a man by the name of Bill Gothard, uh, a minister and the founder of the cult-like organization called the Institute in Basic Life Principles. And one of his basic life principles claimed that, quote, as long as we are under God-given authority, nothing can happen to us that God does not design for his glory and our ultimate good, which is represented by this diagram. Uh, related to the prin this principle, he taught that if you stepped out from under the protection of God-given authority, you opened yourself up to be attacked and controlled by the devil. This is so wrong on so many levels. Um, but first, let's just acknowledge that this is not how umbrellas work. Um, you don't see on a rainy day someone walking under a tower of progressively bigger umbrellas, maybe in Dr. Seuss, um, but this doesn't work. Also, what is the rain? Um, that's not really clear to me. I guess it's the attack and control of Satan. But then that raises another question. Um, how is there still rain dripping off the smaller umbrellas under the bigger umbrella? Um, <laughs> how is the, the rain reaching those umbrellas unless the higher umbrellas are faulty? Uh, the only reason there could be rain running off the wife umbrella and the husband umbrella and the pastor umbrellas if, if, if Christ is a really terrible umbrella. Um, 
So it sets up that husband is a better um, protection than Jesus. Uh, third, this is a really handy device for blaming people when bad things happen to them. If a woman is assaulted, well, she must have stepped out from under the protection provided to her. Um, if you were to counsel her in her pain, counseling would look like asking her to figure out where and when she rebelled against her husband or her father or her pastor. When did she step out from her umbrella? Um, I don't think it will surprise you to learn that Bill Gothard, who invented this image, eventually had to step down from his position due to multiple allegations of sexual assault and harassment against him. Uh, nonetheless, his ideas connected with the assumptions that a lot of people, uh, a lot of people carry, and it spread in some subtler ways to other church communities. Um, I know it still pops up on Facebook from time to time. You'll see somebody sharing it. Uh, and these ideas prop up this belief that women are lower than men, are meant to be subject to men, and can only get to God by going through men as mediators. Uh, this, though, is where we get to the good news in the story of Hannah. When her husband would not listen to her, she went to the tabernacle herself and poured out her grief directly to God. When the high priest tried to send her away, she spoke up in her own defense and was believed and heard. Her response actually broke through Eli's assumptions and his accusations and helped him to realize he had just failed her as a priest. He had come to a woman praying in grief, overwhelmed by emotion, and he accused her of drunkenness because he was worried about what his sons would do. And most significantly, God listened to her prayer and her plea, which she offered directly to God in the tabernacle. I keep mentioning the tabernacle, but I haven't explained what it is. Some of you are going to be familiar, some not so much. Uh, the tabernacle was a sort of mobile temple uh, before the permanent temple was built uh, in, in Jerusalem. It was, uh, it was a tent, and it was set up by the Israelites as a place of worship where you could reliably encounter God's presence. And in the first chapter of the Gospel of John, the word tabernacle shows up again to describe Jesus. It says that in Jesus, God took on flesh and tabernacled among us. That Jesus was and is the true tabernacle, the one in whom we can reliably encounter the presence of God. Jesus would, near the end of his life, get into trouble for describing himself as the temple of God. In contrast to the temple in Jerusalem that he was visiting at the time, a huge, ornately decorated building. Uh, for those of you who maybe grew up in the church and that sort of thing, you've probably heard about how the temple at Jesus' time had special courts that segregated different kinds of people further and further away. So in the very middle was the Holy of Holies, where the presence of God was expected to dwell. Uh, and then there was a chamber that the high priest could enter, and then a chamber for the priests who weren't the high priest, and then a chamber for Israelite men, and then a chamber for Israelite women, and then a chamber for Gentiles, so people who weren't Israelites. Uh, that is true. That's how the temple was built at the time of Jesus. But this was not the design of the tabernacle, and it wasn't the design of the first temple in Jerusalem. Both of these, they're laid out in really excruciating detail in the Bible. These are the chapters that when you read through, I really think there's probably something good in here, but I'm, it's, it sounds like a blueprint. You know, you re, but, it, but it's very detailed. And these different courts don't exist. There is a separate section for the priests and for everyone else. But that is as far as it goes. Um, 
Those separate courtyards were an invention of Herod. He was the ruler and a Roman collaborator who helped fund the temple in Jesus' time as a way to keep himself in power. Um, but Jesus, the true tabernacle and the true temple, was altogether different from that segregationist approach. When a woman who had suffered unending menstrual bleeding for years, who would have been considered unclean for all that time because of her bleeding, reached out to touch him in the middle of a crowd, the cultural expectation would have been that her touch made him unclean, that he would have to purify himself and cleanse himself from her contamination. But instead, he responded to her with mercy, and she found herself healed. When a Gentile woman outside of the community came to him asking for her daughter to be healed, you know, this, this is the story labeled Jesus and the Syrophoenician woman. When she came to him asking for her daughter to be healed, he gave her the opportunity to break down the, the ethnic and the sexist biases of the people around him who thought that she should be sent away for asking for this, for coming outside. And he praised her for her faith publicly. Uh, in the story of Jesus and the Samaritan woman at the well, he meets, as you'd expect, a Samaritan woman at the, mill, at the well. And, and he knew that she had a scandalous history, scandalous in her culture, uh, we might doubt whether or not it's so scandalous that she had been married multiple times and abandoned by multiple husbands. Um, it's very possible that she was abandoned for infertility herself. Uh, he treated her with respect and engaged her in a conversation about theology. Uh, this would not have been expected. When a woman overcome at the goodness of God within Jesus, humiliated herself at his feet, in the midst of a dinner party with local officials and local priests and, and important people, uh, the people started to talk about how scandalous this was that she was weeping uncontrollably at his feet and wiping his feet with her hair. And he defends her against the judgment of others. And he said that she would be remembered anywhere that he was known. And we remember her today. And where did Jesus learn to see the world in this way? to recognize the dignity and the belovedness of people who were mistreated and abused and subjugated by the powerful? Where did he learn to recognize that God upends the order of the world, humbling those in power and lifting up the vulnerable? He learned this, at least in part, from his mother Mary. Um, we're almost to Advent, the, the time leading up to Christmas, and one of the Advent texts that comes up all the time is called the Magnificat. It's, uh, it's in the first chapter of the Gospel of Luke. It's right after Mary has learned that she is going to become pregnant with uh, Jesus, uh, the Messiah. And she prays and maybe sings a song about the ways in which God levels things out, bringing down rulers from their thrones and lifting up the humble. Where did Mary learn that song? Uh, there's a prayer almost identical to it a few verses after the passage we read today which was quoted in part in our opening prayer today. Um, it's a prayer sung by Hannah shortly after God listened to her prayer in which she praises the God who breaks the bows of the strong and raises up the lowly. And so when her husband would not listen to her grief and the high priest falsely accused her and tried to send her away from the tabernacle, Hannah rightly recognized the good news 
She did not have to go through the authority figures and men to reach God. She believed that God was not bound by the human power structures that tried to keep her in her place, that tried to keep them separated. She knew that God cared for people who are shunted to the bottom. She understood that women are created in the image of God just as men are. And God listened to her. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, we praise you for the way you upend the ways of the world, that you raise the humble and lower the proud and listen to the voices of those who are discounted in silence. We ask that you would do this more and more, that your kingdom would break out in the world, that those who are vulnerable would be protected, that those who tend not to be listened to would be listened to. And we pray that you would change our hearts open our eyes and our minds to see how everyone around us, especially those we tend to overlook or mistreat, how they are made in your image and deeply loved by you and help us to share that love. We ask that you would do this thing that is so different from our surrounding culture that praises success and, and all of the, the forms of power um, and celebrity, that you would help us to see the world through your eyes. You would help us to see ourselves through your eyes as people beloved for being people, as people beloved because Jesus came for us. We ask this in your name. Amen.